Father, I wish that we could see the heavenly realms that are around us. And I pray, Lord God, that that would that that would be something that we we know to be true. And that the heavenly hosts and our cloud of witnesses and, and all that your word tells us is cheering us on as we live, albeit an imperfect life in an imperfect broken world in a way that brings glory and honor to you and brings the hope and truth, the life and love of Jesus to people that need it. And God, I pray as we open your word now that you will speak through me as I have nothing to say and I pray that what we read would encourage us, equip us, empower us, and free us to really be the people of God. Father, for those in here who are not followers of Jesus, who question even, Father, your existence, I remember being there. I pray they would know this is a safe place to ask questions. And I'm thankful they're here. And I pray that today would be helpful in their spiritual journey of coming to discover how much you love them and what you've done and your desire to be in relationship with them, Lord. And we ask for your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are studying the book of Romans. So I'm going to ask everybody if they get their table of contents open, your Bible app open, whatever it is, find your table of contents. And Romans is the sixth book down of the New Testament. You'll be at page or chapter one. I'm going to ask you to turn to chapter six. We're going to close out chapter six, peek a little bit into chapter seven this morning. And I want to start if I may, by asking you a question. And that is, are you free? Am I free? Now, for the most part, I think everyone wants to be free. I think we all, we, we, and we also see freedom as something good. And so we should want it. But that also begs a little bit the question, what is freedom? If we want to be free and we, we see freedom as being something that's good, and I've asked you, are you free? I think with that comes this idea, well, what exactly is freedom? Now, we might think initially that freedom is being able to do anything you want. But if you'll go with me and, and, and if you believe that freedom is a good thing, I, I suspect that every one of us in here has a story that when we did something that we wanted to do, it didn't turn out good. And so in that sense, that freedom, if you will, if it was freedom, it didn't serve us well. Maybe you, um, you got into debt that you cannot afford and now you're in a tough spot. You have the freedom and say, I'm just going to buy whatever I want. Or, or maybe it was um, a, 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 an experience or a pleasure you were pursuing and, and, and uh, so you did whatever you want and, and now it's, it's an addiction. Or maybe you did whatever you wanted to do, and it's a divorce. So it's possible, maybe we need to consider that freedom isn't necessarily doing whatever we want. Would you consider for a moment, I think Paul, I believe, is going to take us down this idea and this road of freedom. And that is, could freedom be desiring and having the ability to do the right thing? And doing it. Maybe that's really freedom. But if that's freedom, do, do you hear in that there's a sense of restraint or constraint? The right thing. 
So which one is it? Is it doing whatever you want? Or is it having the desire and the ability to do the right thing in doing it? And so that's kind of the question I want to I hang out there. Because I really want us for this morning, I want us to be able to realize and answer the question, am I free? And if so, what does that mean? Because that's where Paul takes this letter that he's written to people just like you and me in Rome. And he starts talking about freedom. And so we're going to look at the last half of chapter 6. Like I said, peek a little bit into chapter 7. But before we do that, I want to go back and review briefly last week when Brad talked about the first half of chapter 6. Because they go together. And I'm going to start in verse 3. Paul says, or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. Paul took baptism, which is our public profession of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf. And he said something mysteriously happens to us in a way that we identify with Christ in, in a way, in a way that he identified with us, that baptism symbolically expresses that in a way, Jesus' death was our death. That in a way, Jesus took us with him up on the cross, crucified, died, and we were buried with him. Now, we don't fully understand that. But Paul wants us to, to do our very best, recognizing that that has an impact on how we live our lives and, and the sin and brokenness that we struggle with. He also says there, as I read to you the last part of verse 4, so we too may walk in a new way of life. My friends, just in case you're wondering, Christianity is not a better version of you. It is a new you. It's a new me. Skipping down verses 6 and 11, Paul says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 11, So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word consider is an accounting term. He is saying that account for the fact that you're dead to sin. Now, by dead to sin, he doesn't mean immune to it. He doesn't mean that it no longer uh, affects you, that you no longer sin. What he's saying is that when you identified with Christ and his death, and that's expressed symbolically in baptism, that you had the penalty of sin vanquished. That death no longer has a grip on you or a claim on you because you have died with Christ. And that should impact how you see sin in your life. He says, consider it. In other words, account for it. Reckon it to be true. It's kind of like when you play a card game and there's wild cards. Maybe you're playing a game that involves you need a run of four uh, or, or you need a set of four and a run of five or something like that. And when you see that wild card in your hand, you're like, oh my goodness, I need it. And that wild card becomes whatever you want it to be and the game is then played. Everyone reckons that card to be what you claim it to be. And that is what Paul is saying. He's saying, in light of the fact that you identified with Christ in his death, reckon that to be so in your life. You are dead to sin. Account for that. Play that wild card and live in light of that. 
And then he closes out this, the first part, verse 14. He says, for sin will not rule over you because you are not under law, but you are under grace. You see, sin rules over us when we try to save ourselves from our sin, in other words, we try to live our lives in accordance to the law, think 10 commandments, when we try to do that in our own strength, hoping God's watching and we're getting credit because we'll never be able to do that and sin will rule and reign as will death and we're under the law and we'll never get out from underneath it. And Paul says, Reckon it that you're no longer under the law, but you're under grace. Which means the gift of what Jesus has done for us and has liberated us and freed us from sin, that is how we are to live. Now, imagine there are Jewish Christians in this audience. And the law has been everything to them. I mean, they're, 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 the history of their people, the lineage of their people, the law has always been about obey the law and they were trying to save themselves through the law and Jesus came and he blew that up. And so Paul is anticipating that when he says, you're no longer under the law, that they're just gonna run out and start living high on the hog without any regard to God's commands. And he anticipates that. And now we pick it up, verse 15. Paul says, what then? Should we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Absolutely not. He anticipates that they're going to go, what? How can you tell people they're not under the law anymore? They're going to run crazy under this thing called grace. And Paul says, absolutely not. Now, I think we can relate to that if we really give it a moment's thought. I think every, everyone in here who's a follower of Jesus can say at times, or even maybe a recent time, where they took grace and kind of ran with it. I think of the time where, um, and, and like I said, I think we're, we, we've all been there, but just imagine that you... You, you kind of, you're under grace and, 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 and you just know that. And there's this pet sin that's kind of out there. This, 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 this problem that you know, but in your mind you're like, it's not that big, I'm under grace. And so you don't really, as the scripture teaches us, to seek to mortally destroy and kill that sin in your life. You just kind of let it, you know, mosey on along. You're, you're kind of living underneath that grace as if I'm covered. I've, I've had people, and I think we've all been here before, and that is how many of you have ever, and please don't raise your hands, okay? Where you knew that God is a God who forgives, and you went ahead and you sinned because you knew God would forgive you afterwards. I, I've, I've, done that in my own life and I've had others who've come to me the the one that stands out uh, more than anything else was a friend who came to me and he had gotten a girl pregnant and he said Kevin she's going to get an abortion I want her to get an abortion and I know that's the wrong thing to do but if I ask God for forgiveness afterwards will he forgive me we had a long conversation about that but that thinking that mentality you know, we might think it's just unique to the church in Rome, but my friends, it's, 
It's a part of our thinking. And Paul says, absolutely not. And then, in verse 16, he says, Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you were transferred to, and having been liberated from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. In other words, he's saying this analogy of slavery, and and we've got to be really careful not to import in the chattel slavery that's in the history of our country. This This is more indentured servanthood here. And he's using it, and he's saying this is not a perfect analogy, but it's one that you need right now to really understand where your loyalty and obedience is and where it should be if you really want to be free. He says, for just as you offer the parts of yourselves as slaves to moral purity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free from all allegiance to righteousness. In other words, he says, when you were out there sinning, you didn't care about righteousness. You didn't care about God's commands. You were free from that. And free being somewhat of a sarcastic um, statement, maybe. He says, so what fruit was produced then from the things that you are now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. But now since you have been liberated from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. And the end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Go back to verse 17 or 16. He says, don't you know that if you offer yourselves, you offer yourselves, this is something you do. You're not taken hostage. You're not taken captive. You're not forced. You offer yourselves. He says, to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, which is either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. What Paul is saying, my friends, is he is saying that everyone, every one of us in here, everyone outside of this building, that we are a slave to someone or something. It is unavoidable. And why are we that way? We're that way because every one of us in here and everyone outside of this building, we all have a highest good in life that we're seeking to to live for. That we find contentment and satisfaction and meaning and joy. We all have one. We're all seeking that highest good in our lives. And because we're seeking that highest good in our lives, and whatever that is, we are a slave to that. In other words, we serve that because it's that important to us. And there could be many things. It could be money. Some of you, might, it might be money. Is your, if I just have enough money, keep in mind, having money is not a bad thing. But when it becomes the ultimate thing, you have to have it. Your life is wrecked if you don't have it. And everyone around you is wrecked because you don't have it. When when, when money is that important to you, you're enslaved to that. You work hard. You don't care about relationships. You work long hours. You don't care about your health. You don't care about what's going on in your family. You just got to get money. You're enslaved to it. It's money. Maybe it's success. Maybe you want to be successful in what you want to do. Again, nothing wrong with that. But when it becomes the ultimate, you have to have it. I have to have it. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your health. 
Maybe it's control. I got to have control. Like total control. Maybe it's materialism. I got to have stuff. I want the next best thing. I want the biggest this, the best that, the brightest this. Whatever it might be, I got to have those things in order to be content. And, and to, that, that is my highest good in my life that I'm seeking after. And when we do that, and there's so many other things we could throw into that bucket, right? People's approval, um, comfort, sex. But whatever, the Bible says that whatever is your highest pursuit of good in your life, that's not God, that that is a sin. The Bible actually calls it idolatry. When we think of idolatry, we think of wooden images and things like that. But no, idolatry is whatever, and idols tend to be good things in our lives, that we make God things. They're good things in our lives that we pursue, and and, and the things that I mentioned that we pursue, if we pursue them normally and and with regulation and, and the right prioritization, it's okay. But that's not what we do. If something becomes our ultimate, we go after it. We seek to please it because we know that is the source from which we're going to find the highest good in our lives. And if that's not God, then we are slaves to sin. We are slaves to that idol. And that's what Paul is pointing out. And we will obey our idols, whatever is called of us, if it's hours away from family, if it's compromising your character to get wherever you've got to go, if it's giving your health up to get that, whatever, we will make our idols happy because that we attach to it our ultimate object of happiness and contentment and security, etc. And it makes it very dangerous. But Paul also says God can be the highest good in life that we seek. He says right there, he says, it can be either you're a slave to sin, or he says, or you're a slave to obedience leading to righteousness. Later on, he he refers to enslaved righteousness, and then in verse 22, he says, enslaved to God. So there are two options that Paul's giving us, two and only two. There's not a third option. He's saying everyone is enslaved to something or someone, and it's either you are either a slave to sin Or you're a slave to God. There's no no third option. That's what he wants us to understand. And with that in mind, he's saying, now let us look at what is life like when you're enslaved to sin and what is life like when you're enslaved to God. And keep in mind, we're looking for freedom. We're seeking to understand what really is, does it mean to be free? Are we free as a slave to sin? Or are, we a, are we free as a slave to God? So let's start with the outcome for those who are slaves to sin. Verse 19. He says, I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves, and when he says parts of yourselves, he's talking about who you are, your, your, your words, your thoughts, your affections, your actions. He says, so as you offer the parts of yourselves as slaves to moral impurity, think sin, you're, you're offering yourself to your idol, you're, you're a slave to sin, and to greater and greater lawlessness. And then skip down to verse 22, or excuse me, verse uh, 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free from allegiance of righteousness. So what fruit 
was produced then from the things that you are now ashamed of for the end of those things is death. The, 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 the point again, if we accept that freedom leads to good things, Paul is showing us that to be free, to, be a, to, to do whatever you want, sin included, does not lead to good things. It, in that, it leads to a very problematic life. So we need to take that into consideration when we're thinking about, am I really free? And, and, and it's so problematic that it results in death, he says, in verse 21. It ends in death. Death doesn't mean just physical. It means separated from God, eternally in hell kind of death. And I say that very carefully because that's a very terrible outcome. But notice that what he says, he says greater and greater lawlessness. Now we're talking about what's the outcome of someone who's a slave to sin. Paul says there's greater and greater lawlessness. In other words, sin gets easier and easier the more you sin. I mean, this is kind of like a, have you ever uh, had a lie? Maybe some of you don't like that word. Half truth, I'll say it that way, okay? And you, and you, and you, you say it, you speak it. And now you realize you've you got to keep saying it so that you don't get caught in the lie. And, and if you say it long enough, what happens, it starts to actually kind of believe it's true. Let me, let me show you the words from the great theologian George Costanza. Before Jerry was taking his lie detector test, George lays this profound theological truth on Jerry. He says, Jerry, just remember, if you believe it to be true, it's not a lie. And that's, that's where sin takes us. If we, we can believe it and we can think it and we can say it and we can cover up so much that pretty soon we start believing eh, it really is true. We, we, we justify and we rationalize things that we know are wrong, but, but we just want them. And so we, we rationalize them away and we, and we justify them away. And what happens if we do that often enough, we actually stop recognizing and even feeling that what we're doing is wrong. That, that's just how sin works. I, I imagine people in here, there, there are those of you in here who could say that it started with a lustful look and now I struggle with a pornography addiction. Or others of you could say, it started with just too friendly of a relationship with someone of the opposite sex. And it fell into an affair. Or some of you could say, it started with one night in which I, I ignored my spouse. And, and the next day I, I ignored my spouse. And that, that, that went into a week. And then it went into a season. And, and now I'm divorced. That is how sin works. When we are enslaved to sin, it gets easier. The lawlessness gets greater and greater. But it's not just that. He also says that so what fruit was produced then from the things that you are now ashamed of, he says. You see, when we are enslaved to sin, when we want to do whatever we want to do, regardless of any constraint or restraint, there's shame and there's guilt that comes from that. I mean, you have your own moral code. Paul talked about this in Romans chapter two. God certainly has his commands. You've been created in the image of God. You might not even believe in God, but because you've been created in the image of God, you have an inherent sense in some ways, albeit it's, it's, it's broken and, and, and cracked a little bit, but some of the right things that you do as a part of your own moral code, they're actually commands from God. 
But you even break your own moral commands and your own moral. I break mine as well. I, I break God's commands. I, I don't intend to, but I do. But when you're enslaved to sin and you continue to do that, you're just inviting guilt and shame into your life, and that's very problematic. But let's not just leave it at guilt and shame. But hell, what else do you invite in? You add in fear and insecurity and purposelessness and those kinds of things. I mean, that's the outcome. Paul's saying that's the outcome if you offer yourself, it says. Remember, this is not a hijack. This is not a hostage situation. This is you saying, I want to be free, and I want to do whatever I want. Paul's saying, okay. But here's, here's what comes with that. And just know this is how it ends. It ends in death. But, but, let's talk about the other side. Let's talk about the outcome of what it means to be a slave for God. And notice in verses 18 and 22, Paul repeats the same statement. And it's a statement of freedom. He says in verse 18, and having been liberated from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. And then verse 22, he says, but now since you have been liberated from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit which results in sanctification. So, so we see the word liberated there twice. Now what I want you to know is, did you hear the connection? There was liberation connected to constraint, connected to enslavement actually. And what Paul is saying is that to those who are followers of Jesus, who have put their faith and trust in Christ, who, who in their baptism and proclaimed that they identified that Jesus died for them and, and, and something that, that you can't fully explain that, that is as if we were there and that death no longer has its grip on us, that we're no longer under the law, but we're under the grace and we have this freedom now from sin. But to be enslaved by God, do you see... Paul is talking about true freedom has constraint. It has restraint. That it's freedom through enslavement. That slaves of God really truly experience what true freedom is all about. You've, you've heard me use this analogy before, but I think it's so powerful. When God created fish, He gave them the ocean. And they are free to swim in the ocean. But imagine you, you feeling, for some reason, you have an inordinate love for fish. Not fishing and catching, but just fish. And you reel in a fish and you're thinking, I've saved you from your constraints. I'm going to take you back on the boat. We're going to walk and I'm going to show you the beauties of land. I'm going to take you to the Grand Canyon. I'm going to show you Mount Rainier. So you can be free. How long does that trip last? The fish dies. Why does the fish die? Because the fish was never created to be anywhere other than constrained under the water where he or she is free. And it's the same for us. We were created to be in relationship with God, to surrender to God and, and to Jesus as our captain, king, and CEO of our lives. And when we do that, we become enslaved to God, but we find true freedom. For we were always meant to have the constraint. So Paul is saying that true freedom is freedom through enslavement. When we are slaves to God, 
we're as free as we'll ever be. We're as free as we'll ever need to be. We're, we're as free as we were created and intended to be. And Paul says, that you've become enslaved to God, that you have your fruit which results in sanctification. The fruit, he's, he's talking about that, that, that inside of you, when you're free as, as, as a slave of God, you have love and joy and peace and patience and they're not conditional. They're there because the presence of God through the Spirit of God is inside of you. There's self-control, there's, there's faithfulness, there's generosity, there's wisdom, there's courage. That's what we have. That's who we are. Reckon that, count that to be true. Live it out as if it is. Play your wild card and say, this is who I am. And God will do something powerful with that. Paul then uh, peeks into chapter seven and he wants to use this marriage analogy to drive home this idea of freedom and, and where it comes from. In chapter seven, verse one, he says, since I am speaking to those who understand law. He's talking about the Jews. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. And, he, and when, he, when he's referring to law, He's talking about the mentality and attitude that says, I see the law, I will obey the law, and God owes me forgiveness. God owes me favor. I'm saving myself. And so Paul is saying, I'm I'm speaking to those who understand law, brothers. Are you unaware that the law has authority over someone as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then if she gives herself to another man while her husband is living she will be called an adulteress because she's broken the marriage law. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Then if she gives herself to another man, she is not an adulteress. Therefore, my brothers, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the crucified body of the Messiah so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we may bear fruit for God. So he uses this marriage analogy in which he, he wants us to understand that in marriage law, if one spouse dies, then the other spouse is free to remarry. And so what he's saying is because we have died to the law, because we identified and, and we, we, we proclaim that symbolically in baptism, we identify with Christ's death. We, we count on Christ's death. It's as if we were there dying for our sins. But, but Jesus was there as the perfect sacrifice to die for our sins so that we were no longer now under the law. The law cannot condemn us and sin cannot hold power over us. Though we still have our old habits and hang-ups and we still wrestle at times with that, but we're no longer overmatched. And because of that, we are free to remarry, in essence, Christ. In essence, the gospel. We're, we're under grace now. And because of that, we're now, we're now free. But even in marriage, right? In marriage, you give up something in marriage. There's, there's some constraint. There's some restraint there. If, if there isn't, there's a terrible marriage. But, but you get so much more back. And, and you're more free in the sense of you, that you have someone who loves you unconditionally and, and the joys of marriage. So we have this this analogy that Paul's trying to drive home this powerful point that he says in in verse six, he says, but now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. He says, you've been released, you're free. And he says, not that you live this new way, uh, not in the, in the old letter of the law. In other words, out of fear. They, they were, because the law, they were trying to save themselves and some of you are trying to do that. 
Some of you still deep down inside believe that if you are good enough, that God will and owes you forgiveness and favor and blessing. But with that comes fear. Have I been good enough? Am I good enough right now? You, you have loved ones that, that you know are, are, are close to death. I, I, I've talked to some of you where, where you've had loved ones so close to death and you're worried about, are they gonna go to heaven? And man, you get on it. You start thinking about, how do I talk to them? And you realize it's, it's not about, have they done enough good things? Because man, it's, it's too late for that. It's do they know Jesus and have they and will they put their faith and trust in Christ so that his death takes them out from underneath the law and they become under grace. That's the freedom that we have because otherwise we're living out of fear. But, but when we're living out of grace, what happens is we have these new uh, motivations to obey God's law. When we say we're, under the law, or we're under, no, no longer under the law, but we're under grace, that doesn't mean that the, that the commands of God are, are null and void in our lives. The moral law still exists. But what it means is we no longer obey the moral law out of fear. We obey it out of, out of gratitude, out of love, and out of honor. We, we, obey, we want to. We desire. See, that's where true freedom is. It's to desire to do the right thing and the ability to do it, and then you do it. And what happens is you, you're born again, and you desire because you, you realize what God has done for you, what Jesus has done for you, what you have in him. And out of that comes a desire, a motivation, a healthy one that says, I want to obey the moral law of God because I want to honor what he has done for me. I want to show my love back what he has done for me. I, I hope you hear the difference. I hope you see that the outcome is very much different. Paul says, as a matter of fact, it leads to eternal life, he says. Contrast that with eternal death. Now notice, lastly, he makes reference to in verse 19, he says, so now offer them, them being the parts of yourselves, as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. And then in verse 22, he says that you've become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. Sanctification is a fancy way of saying that you start to obey more and more and more. Just like the lawlessness that gets greater and greater, Paul says, the more you sin, the easier it becomes. Well, conversely, when you become a slave to God, the more you obey, the easier it becomes. And the more likeness of Christ is seen in you, which is the sanctification process, which hopefully for all of us in this room who are followers of Jesus, we have many years of God chipping away and working to fashion us into the likeness of Jesus. But sanctification is, is when you find it easier. And my friends, you should find it easier. I, I, I need to say this very carefully. And with all the respect in the world, as I said at the beginning of the service, if your highest good that you're pursuing is not God, you, you, you are a slave to sin. I would also say, if you're not seeing in your life a growing desire and, and, and more obedience, then, then you really have to ask yourself, are you free? Are you, are you free in, in the true sense of the word? Or are you a slave to sin? Because sanctification, this, this growing obedience, is, is how we can know whether we're free or not. So, 
I asked you the question, are you free? I, I, I hope you have some things to think about and really evaluate that and recognize that true freedom involves constraint and restraint. As a matter of fact, in Paul's words, it involves being enslaved to God. So with that in mind, let me challenge you this week. Paul said, as well as, as, as we're enslaved to God, he says, offer the parts of yourselves as slaves of righteousness. This is when you give yourself wholly over to God in, in which you maximize your freedom of living in the fullest extent possible, and that is for God's glory. And, and you find that in here. You, you, this is where God says, here's how I want you to live. And as you read this, you'll find that as you live out the commands of God with the right motivation, healthy motivation, you will experience freedom, true freedom. And, and I would challenge you, would you please use that freedom, not for yourselves, that I would use it not for myself, but that you would use it to serve the purposes of God. So just ask yourself, the freedom that I have, some of you in here are going, man, yeah, this, that's it, that's it, I got it, I got it, yes, I, yeah. I have that freedom. How are you using your freedom? Are you using that, your freedom with Jesus in your pocket? You got your savior there in case things go bad. No, I'm just gonna go live my life for myself and pull him out. He's my lifeguard. I call off the, out of the chair when I'm in trouble or, or am I really taking this freedom I have and using it purposefully and intentionally for the purposes of God? Just ask yourself that question, okay? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your patience with us, God. Thank you for your word. I, I pray that, that the truthfulness of your word has made its way into our hearts and our heads. And God, I pray that we would be honest and ask ourselves, are we free? Are our lives, are they full of pursuing you are they full of love and joy and peace and patience and all those things unconditionally are they full of, of generous acts of wise decisions or lord god are they haunted by sins that just seem easier and easier as we go are, are they haunted by guilt and shame and fear and security and worry. God, I pray you would impress upon every person here and every person listening to know whether really free or not and that true freedom is found in constraint and restraint as, as slaves of God. God, I pray that decision would be made and we would live our freedom out in light of that. For your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.